This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Star Wars. Maybe you get around the movies. It's a good story, right? But what if space actually became a war zone? The US says it's ready to fight in space if it needs to. So as tensions with those big space powers, Russia, China, ramp up, could it happen? Well, later we're going to be getting into space wars, what they'd mean, what they'd look like. We'll find out which countries are already preparing. First, though, big news of the day out of WA. Hack. It's been an honour and a privilege to serve the people of this state. On Triple J. When WA Premier Mark McGowan announced a press conference today, everyone was trying to guess what it was. Is he actually stepping down? What's happened? Is it a scandal? Something else? Well, he didn't have to wait long because... He announced the press conference, he had it, and Mark McGowan resigned as Premier and from politics. And this is the reason he gave. The truth is I'm tired, extremely tired. In fact, I'm exhausted. The role of political leadership doesn't stop. It's relentless. It comes with huge responsibility that is all-consuming each and every day. And combined with the COVID years, it's taken it out of me. So there it is, WA Premier Mark McGowan saying years in the job have left him exhausted. Did anyone see this coming? If you're in WA, what do you think? We've got some messages already coming through from people on the text line. Someone says, hi, I'm from WA. I think Mark McGowan, for the most part, has done an amazing job. Lockdown saved lives, it saved jobs, helped the Australian economy. If we had to shut WA mining, the economy would have been hammered. Another person, though, says, so glad to get rid of dictator McClown. Entire reign of media spin and cover-ups. Hopefully people see the real mess he's been profiting off. So, look, there are some mixed opinions coming through from listeners already. Well, someone who knows a lot about WA politics is Jenna Clark. She's Associate Editor at The Australian and she's with us now. G'day, Jenna. Long time no speak. Hello, Dave. So nice to chat to you. Huge day, not only for WA politics, but significant for the whole country, right? Oh, it is. There's been a lot going on. I mean, I think we have to come out uh, off the outset. He did did address it in his press conference. Mr McGowan will not be replacing Koshy on Sunrise. He will not be replacing (laughs) Damien Hardwick at Richmond. He did uh, that straight off the bat. But, yeah, huge day. No one, as you said in your intro, no one really saw this coming. Uh, I think everyone sort of thought that he would potentially make the historic tilt for a third uh, crack at being Premier of Western Australia when the state election uh, heats up in 20 months time but no alas he's stepping down he said he's tired he's not tired of the job he's just uh, pretty exhausted I think um, the fact that he was flanked by his uh, lovely wife Sarah who was the only one looking happy at that press conference speaks volumes I know she looked pretty stoked all the way through it she's like yes he's getting rid of this job (laughs) Um, yeah I mean people will be asking oh is there more to this I don't know like you're a journalist you've got your ear to the ground was it as much of a surprise to the media Look, I think he's definitely skirted around the issue when pressed on it in recent interviews. Um, I, I note that when he spoke to Andrew Clennell, who's the Sky political uh, editor, last November, he sort of laughed it off and said, I'm not thinking about it right now. Uh, I just want to, you know, do my best and govern for the state. So the fact that he didn't, you know, rule it out then probably should have had us aware that there could be a potentially a change uh, afoot it is interesting. But, you know, who know? who knows? You know, we've seen exhaustion be touted as one of the 
one of the most you know common um, excuses of not, I shouldn't say an excuse, but one of the reasons why leaders have stepped down in in very high profile gigs in recent times. Look at Angela Merkel. Look at Jacinta Ardern. Look at uh, Peter Gutwin out of out of Tasmania. So sure, you know politics is incredibly taxing, and Mr. McGowan has been has been in uh, in power or been in public office for 30-odd years. So it's understandable that he's a bit a bit exhausting. But interestingly, Dave, I think it, it's one thing to be exhausted as Premier. I think the one thing that we've learned out of COVID is that Premiers, especially popular ones, don't really know how to delegate to their Cabinet appropriately. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. I mean, Mark McGowan was hugely successful in the previous state election. What's his popularity like now? Like, is it still strength to strength? Yeah, well, interestingly, with Newspoll, uh, with the Australian found here, I think he broke, he basically broke Newspoll, like the Kardashians sort of broke the internet back in the day. <laughs> you know, he was Mr. 89% ahead of the previous 2021 state election. I think he was 79, the satisfaction rating was 89% and he was a better leader, 79% over the Liberal uh, leader of 13% back in the day. So I think he's still incredibly popular, but it is definitely waning when you look at issues like some of uh, what you're hearing on the text line. There are some issues that are really coming to the fore now, specifically that the health system is absolutely cooked, but I think that's the same all around the country. Infrastructure projects are billions of dollars over budget and years in delay. And of course, he, you know, he wanted to talk about the success he's had in social progression. You just have to look what's happening in the juvenile, you know, justice system to see that the you know, cracks are really starting to show there. When you're having you know, Indigenous kids in jail and pulling sniper rifles on them when they're rioting at Bankshire Hill. It's a pretty damning front page. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Jenna, does the timing make sense uh, in, like, you know, if we think about the next state election being a couple of years away still, does it make yeah. sense for such a popular leader to go now to give the person who replaces him a bit of time to get some support going? Yeah, I think it's going to be, well, I think we're always really um, keen to talk about the fact that the Libs have got so far to come in terms to regain so many seats. They only have two in the lower house now. This has been a pretty, this will be a pretty big blow for the Labor brand in WA because the face, as of Friday, will disappear. So the, the new leader will potentially need that 20 months just to even earn some type of public rec recognition. So I think whoever it is need to probably get on the blower pretty, uh, pretty quick to the major media outlet. Uh, in Western Australia to get some some pretty good uh, front pages because I think uh, it could be it could potentially be quite an interesting contest considering the Libs say that they are they are re rearing to rearing to go for the twenty twenty five state election. And do we have any idea who might replace him at this stage? There are talks that it will be Health Minister Amber-Jane Sanderson um, and she's relatively new to uh, in a ministerial portfolio. She did incredibly well during the voluntary assisted dying debate uh, in 2019 in regards to she basically led the review within the state and then basically brought the government and the parliament sort of together and um, brought through those historic changes there. And then we've also got Deputy Premier Roger Cook who the timing, when you speak of timing, He's actually on an overseas assignment at this stage. So they read into that what uh, your listeners will, that it will probably go down to be a bit of a members ballot between uh, Roger Cook and Amber Jade Sanderson in the coming days. Oh, we've got a lot of thoughts coming through on the text line. I knew you'd have all the analysis ready to go. Jenna Clark <laughs> from The Australian, so good to speak with you. Thanks so much for coming on Hack.
Thanks, Dave. Got some more messages. Someone says, hey, Dave, as a Victorian living in Perth for five plus years, I say good riddance to Emperor McGowan. Another person, wonder which lobbying job McGowan will move into now. Still, he's done a fantastic job. That was Sean from Geelong. Another person says, politicians have such privilege in their ability to retire early that I struggle to sympathise. And another person, man quits job. Who the F cares? Oh, come on, come on. It's the leader of the state. I think we'll give him that. Hack. We don't understand just how insidious it is. On Triple J. Just a trigger warning, we are going to speak about eating disorders now. So if this might raise anything for you, might be good to turn off for about 10 minutes. You know, we'll never know just how many Australians have experienced an eating disorder. Like some say it could be as many as one in 10. And the pandemic really exacerbated this huge problem. Survivors, those living with it daily, their families, doctors, all these people constantly saying, there's not enough help out there. We need to be doing more. We need to figure out new ways to help people to prevent this from happening. Well, today the government announced about $70 million of funding for research and frontline support services. So what does all this mean? Well, Shalala Madora is here to explain. And just a warning, again, this story does include experiences of eating disorders. In 2020, lockdown had just been announced. It was quite a trend at that time to sort of work out and watch your eating and have like a lockdown transformation. Katia Jasky is 16 years old and in year 11. She started experiencing symptoms of anorexia when she was just 13. I was having a lot of trouble sort of with insecurities in my friendships and insecurities in myself. So the idea was that, oh, maybe if I, you know, work out a bit more, then I might look nicer and people will appreciate me more or whatever. Her illness progressed really quickly. Within two years of being diagnosed with anorexia, she'd been admitted to hospital 12 times. It becomes a very vicious cycle. I didn't want to go back in because it's such a traumatic place, but my eating disorder actually loved it because it provided some kind of validity on my illness. Katya wants to share her story with you because she thinks the system isn't designed to help patients recover. Depending on where you live, the wait for a hospital bed or a spot in a specialised unit can stretch to several months. There is just not enough services. There's not enough support. The support that is available does not cater to, it is not recovery focused. We know that about 80% of people at the moment say that they're not getting the right kind of support and care when they seek that help. Assistant Minister for Mental Health, Emma McBride, recognises there are failings in the system. Today, she and Health Minister Mark Butler announced extra cash for eating disorders. That's why we've seen this this significant investment to, that we're talking about today, this $70 million, uh, $20 million of that already, working with existing researchers or, or service providers, but another $50 million to be able to help to, to provide that right kind of investment in research. But that extra money isn't going to where people with lived experience, like Katia, say it's most needed, hospital beds. Emma McBride says that's a responsibility of the states and the feds are helping where they can. We don't want anybody to have to, to wait longer than they need to for care, but we also need to make sure that we have the right support in the community with their GP, um, through psychologists and dietitians, because we know that um, often people get the best results when they're able to be supported and cared for within their community. 
The best available data is that at least one in 20, but probably more likely closer to one in 10 people will have an eating disorder in Australia. Sarah Maguire is the director of the Inside Out Institute for Eating Disorders at the University of Sydney. She says the pandemic was really difficult on people living with eating disorders. There's been much greater presentations of people to the health system with eating disorders. Inside Out has received some of the new funding for two projects. The first is a tool to help GPs identify and diagnose eating disorders. Our GPs feel pretty unsupported in this area at times and certainly people um, with a lived or living experience of an eating disorder and their families report having trouble getting diagnosed. The second is for a digital therapy platform that can deliver aspects of care for eating disorders online. Sarah says while it's not going directly towards beds, this money will ease the burden on hospitals. This money actually will have an impact on those hospital wait lists. Because, of course, at the moment what's happening is we're not providing treatment in the community to people and they are deteriorating to the point that they need to go on a wait list for a hospital. And she says that money put aside for research is crucial. I think in people's minds research feels far away, but actually the, the reason we have high mortality rates in anorexia nervosa is because we don't invest in research. Sarah acknowledges that 70 million bucks isn't going to solve the deep systemic problems that people with eating disorders face. Kutch is glad the funding is making people talk more about eating disorders. People are aware of the issue. People are saying this needs to change. It's a good start. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora there. And remember, if this has raised anything for you, the Butterfly Foundation's National Helpline is one 800 There's also a text line you can hit up as well. You can message in too. If you do have experiences or thoughts on this, you can get in touch with us on our text line, 0439757555. I want to go to an expert right now. Associate Professor Gemma Sharp leads the Body Image and Eating Disorders Research Group at Monash Uni, and she is with us. Hey, Gemma, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. $70 million, as we just heard, a lot of money. What do you think, though? Is it going to the best places? What's your take on this? I'm thrilled to see an investment in eating disorders research first up. I think there were so many years, decades even, where eating disorders research was not even on the radar. So it's great that there has been an investment and more to come. I think it's, uh, I mean, as we've been discussing, there are so many holes that need to be fixed. And I think 70 million is, uh, is a start, but there's a lot more needed. You were part of a group that applied for funding. What were you hoping to put money towards? <laughs> uh, forgive my laughter. Um, <laughs> th- thank you for sharing that. Uh, we were uh, very interested in supporting people with severe and endure eating, uh, severe and enduring eating disorders. So that means people who've generally had their eating disorder for more than seven to ten years. And uh, generally, these people have stopped seeking treatment because they're like, this isn't working for me. And uh, we wanted to offer them something and and show them that they could still recover, that there is still hope. And uh, obviously, we're continuing that work anyway, but it would have been great to have the funding. Whenever we talk about eating disorders, Gemma, we hear from people saying there aren't enough beds in hospitals dedicated to this kind of care. Is that the biggest issue when it comes to frontline treatment? 
That's definitely an issue. Um, eating disorders are very much underserviced. Mental health in general is underserviced, but eating disorders are considered quite niche, sadly, and um, and these specialised services aren't uh, prolific enough. So people can be waiting a very long time for treatment and usually they get worse while they're waiting. And how common are eating disorders? Because the research around this seems to be a, a, a bit, uh, you know, hard as well because it doesn't sound like we have a really complete picture of just how big this issue is. It's enormous. And uh, so we have people who are uh, meet our diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder, but then there's all the people experiencing disordered eating, which is basically very close to an eating disorder and could slip into it. And that's very prevalent. So I think, I mean, you could interview lots and lots of people and who wouldn't say they have some issue with eating at some point in their lives. It's just very common. Yeah, well, look, there's definitely so much more to unpack here and we'll still be checking in uh, to to see, you know, where this money's going, how the research is going, because it, it'll be years in the making. Associate Professor Gemma Sharp from Monash University, appreciate your insight. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you so much for having me. Someone on the text line says, yeah, there's no one answer to the eating disorder problems. You know, it takes many levels of support. Hack. I thought it was a bit silly at first, but then I understood it. On Triple J. It is National Reconciliation Week. And if you're not sure what that is, it's held on the same dates every year, from the 27th of May to the 3rd of June. And that's because those two dates mark two big milestones. The successful 1967 referendum, which meant Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples would be counted as part of the population, and the High Court Mabo decision that legally recognised that First Nations peoples have rights to the land, native title. So Reconciliation Week's all about Australians learning about our shared histories, cultures, achievements. Indigenous, non-Indigenous, everyone. And this year's theme is Be a Voice for Generations. Now, our reporter Kimberly Price has been speaking to two Barkindji guys, Jerice and Zach, about how they're becoming leaders in their communities and how they celebrate their culture. Far from city life, where the riverlands meet the desert, Mildura boasts a First Nations population of almost 5%, a hell of a lot higher than Australia's 3.2. Jerice and Zach are 15. They're cousins and they're part of the Barkindji mob. Barkindji means river people. Even though they're just teenagers, both boys are role models for the other Indigenous kids. It makes me feel like good to know that they're just, you know, like they're not like scared of you or nothing, just like they can come up to you and talk to you. There's a lot of kids like in the street, Aboriginal kids especially. Try to get them like home and off the streets. And if like they're going through anything, I can talk to them about it. Because I like have all that experience and all that. Zach's connection to his culture helps him help others. My totem is a tail eagle. It's just like your spirit animal, guide animal, just watches over you. He dances with his dad and uncles out on Barkindji country, on sacred ground. We have to dance at like special spots, because if we go anywhere else, we have to do like a smoking ceremony to be able to dance there, or like get permission to dance there. But normally we just go dance on Barkindji land, just like Perry Sandhills, just over from the Sandhills. That's where all the 
Barkindji people were like buried and all that there. It's a tradition that's been passed down through generations, and Zach says they only go out a few times a year when they need to. I thought it was a bit silly at first, but then I understood it, like what it means and all that. You know, I think it's like an honour to be able to get out there and do it. Before they dance, Zach and his family paint themselves just like their ancestors did. The traditional like colours are just like red, black, and white. Oh, yellow, alka. Alka is like a rock that you can smash up into like clay and then paint yourself with it. For Jerese, he connects to his family on Barkindji country too, but differently. So my story is about like emu eggs. It's a seasonal thing. Yeah, we just look for tracks leading to the nest. His great-grandmother Tittle passed down the tradition to Jerese's nan Colleen, who is kind of like the ringleader when they go out. We look for tracks and once we um, find the nest, we break the eggs out and then we go back to camp, show Celebrate. We take five if it's ten, and then once we get back, we'd either eat there and take the shells home, and then carve them, paint them. One emu egg can feed about five people, but Jerese's family don't break the eggshell. They blow out the yolk and they gently carve the eggs with a pocket knife. Carve a story that relates to you. When I'm ready, yeah, for like a story to relate to. The tradition is something that will continue. Goes down by like generations. Jerese and Zach hope more First Nations kids in their community will take the time to learn about their heritage. Some of those kids don't even know like their culture or like their mob or like how to dance or nothing like that there. They just think it's all just silly. Once you learn like all that stuff, I think that'll like get them more like interested in doing other things instead of being out late doing dumb things. And both boys look after each other. Just good to have like cousin like to talk to if you need someone to talk to. For me, I talk to Therese sometimes. And that's what I feel like other people should do more. Like just try to talk to their cousins, their friends or something. Hack on Triple Jack. Kimberly Price with Jerese and Zach's story there. So interesting. And we're going to keep bringing you stories as part of Reconciliation Week. So make sure you keep listening. Time to move on. Hack. We don't want there to be a war in space, but if others choose to start a war there, we'll be ready. On Triple Jack. So apparently the US is ready to fight in space. That's what a senior military official said. You just heard it. The United States of America ready to fight tonight in space if we have to. But why would it have to? Well, could be to counter the threats from countries like Russia and China, who are also big space nations. Everyone's trying to show their strength and their dominance. So could conflicts in places like Ukraine, for example, be taken into orbit? What would a space war look like? I wanted to unpack this a bit because I was fascinated when I read this story this morning. Someone who knows a lot about this area is Stephen Freeland, an emeritus professor at Western Sydney University and professorial fellow at Bond University. Hey, Stephen, thanks for coming on, Hack. Oh, hi, David. It's a pleasure. Should we be worried about a space war? We certainly should be worried about people talking about a space war. Um... Space is this incredible thing. Uh, You and I and literally everybody listening to this program and literally everybody around the world uses space technology every day. And it's not just the... uh, your phone and the the location services. It's for weather forecasting and financial transactions and infrastructure. And space is so critical to every country's economy and therefore, of course... Um, we should be using space to continue to develop all these incredible benefits which allow you and I, but also people in much poorer countries and smaller countries to also be able to develop their standards of living. So 
Space is crucial, but it's also, and there's no doubt about this, it's also incredibly important from a national security perspective because now space is used by every government to protect their crucial infrastructure. And of course, they are worried that if they don't have access to their own technology or that of their allies, then that would have devastating effects on Earth. So, of course, everybody is protective about the way that they use space and the need for space to be uh, used in a way that maximises everything they can do. But, of course, it begins to sound like it's a competition. And it's not a competition in the sense that if you and I engage in a conflict on Earth, there may be a winner, there may be a loser, but ultimately things can be ultimately repaired and made up. But if we engaged in the unthinkable, which is a conflict in space that generated massive amounts of, let's say, space debris, junk floating around at incredible speeds, what that means is not only will I make space difficult for you, but it also makes space difficult for me. There is no winner in a war in space. And I think that's really something that is important to realise. And all of this talk about wars in space being inevitable, you know, that is, I think, unfortunately, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so we have to counter that. So are countries already getting ready? Like, are they already preparing means to take conflicts to space? I don't think um, we... Well, we don't know. Space, as I said, is critical for everything that happens on Earth in any country, including the way that countries on Earth engage in warfare. So sadly, but it's a, it's a fact of life, space technology is part of the critical um, military platforms of every country. Australia's military would not engage in any uh, conflict without first securing um, uncompromised access to space. So it's part of the military platform. But engaging in warfares on Earth, which is what we've done forever, including in the last 20 or 30 years using space, is very different from engaging in making space itself the theatre of war. And, you know, all of this talk about weaponising space and protecting your assets, I mean, of course we will hear that and pe- and the rhetoric is, uh, is raised and raised because, as you said uh, in your introduction, everybody wants to make sure that the other people know or at least think that I can do things to them if they, you know, and use that as a deterrence. So there are preparations being made. There's a whole lot of technology that is being used now by all of the major countries to compromise the use of space for by others. You know, we've got things that jam technology, that spoof them by sending the wrong technology. All of those things are happening now and it's undoubted that all of these countries are, in a sense, ratcheting up their military capabilities in space. But that does not, must not, should not mean that a war 
with space as the theatre of warfare is inevitable. In fact, that is something that we must do everything we can to avoid. I mean, we're talking about like big superpowers, China, Russia, the US. What about countries like Australia? Would Australian officials be watching on and kind of uh, not preparing, but like really considering this and, and what we would do in the event of something breaking out? Well, Australia, like every other country, is highly dependent on space in every way for every civil and commercial uh, activity and infrastructure, but also, of course, for our national security, for our remote sensing to protect our borders. Our military, of course, is very, very interested in developing space technology and aligning itself with its allies. We have now a space command within the Department of Defence that really looks at those issues. So yes, of course, Australia is intimately involved in discussions, in research, but I don't think Australia is uh, a country that is developing weapons in space or anything like that. But of course, like every country, we are concerned that it only takes one set of irresponsible behaviour, which would then give rise to um, reprisals from another side, and things could very quickly spiral out of control. So with all of this technological development, we need at the same time the right sort of discussions, diplomacy, uh, there's a lot of UN bodies. I'm speaking at, in the UN next week at the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, where all of those countries are there. They all, of course, compete with each other. There are geopolitical tensions, but they also talk about the fact that we have to coexist, even if we don't like each other, even if we don't necessarily cooperate. We have to coexist because if we do things in space that make it unsustainable and inaccessible, we all suffer, including the big countries, all of them. Interesting. Well, Stephen Freeland, Emeritus Professor at Western Sydney Uni, I appreciate your insight into this. You know a lot about this area. Speaking at the UN, that's amazing, and we'll be checking in uh, in the months ahead. I want to hear how all these discussions go, what people are talking about. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. My pleasure. It's really good to talk to you, David. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple J.